If you would, open your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. As you turn there, uh, our lesson this morning, we focused on prayer, and we talked about prayer uh, in, in a number of different ways, and what we're going to do tonight is we're actually going to study a prayer uh, in the Bible. It comes from one of the Psalms. But before we get to that Psalm, there are two New Testament passages that I want to spend just a brief amount of time on that I think will be a, a good introduction to the Psalm that we're going to be studying, which it's kind of, I guess... Uh, not very, it's counterintuitive to read something that was written later as an introduction to something that was written earlier, but that's what we're going to do, and I think it'll, it'll be a good, uh, a good setting for, for understanding the psalm. But in 1 John chapter 1, uh, actually the class we did Wednesday night, it was just an online thing that was put online. We went through the first chapter of John, and uh, in it we, we noticed a couple of things um, about who God is, that God is light. Uh, we also talked about the fact that God is love, um, and uh, we talked about uh, se several things about the way God is described in 1 John. But as you go through 1 John, there's this series of conditional statements uh, that um, you have one on this side, and then the other one is kind of the, the counter to it, or the opposite to it. Uh, what I mean is, if you look at verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness... We lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so you have the, the two counterpoints. One is you walk in darkness. The other is you walk in the light. And you see the results of, of each of them. Um, what I want to notice is verses 8 and 9, and then 10, and, and then the, the beginning of chapter 2. 8 and 9, notice the counterpoints. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is the person who is unwilling to say that he has sin. That is the person unwilling to be honest with who he is. The person who's unwilling to do the deep, hard work of, of looking inside and recognizing not only, uh, not only have I sinned, but I actually, when I look honestly and openly at who I am, there's a lot of room for improvement. I, I'm probably worse than I feel like I am. You know, most people, it is interesting, the way that uh, if you were to run across somebody and you met them one time in your life, and the one time you met them, they were abrasive and rude and maybe seemed arrogant, and then they went away quickly, you might walk around thinking, well, that person's kind of a jerk. Uh, like that per you, you would define all of them based on that one brief encounter that you had. However, when it comes to ourselves, there might be times, believe it or not, that I'm a jerk or that you are too, but we don't tend to define our entire existence by our worst moments. We tend to want to define who we are by our best of intentions, and then we'll say, well, I wasn't really being me. I think sometimes we might want to recognize sometimes we are really being us, even in our worst moments. Maybe we're not always as good as we think we are. Maybe we are sinful people and that plagues us. And that attitude shouldn't lead us to hopeless despair and guilt, but to 
uncontrollable thanksgiving at the goodness and the grace of God who loves me anyway, who forgives me and who frees me up so that I can live a forgiven life, not a sinless life, not a life where I've earned it because I'm such a great person, but a forgiven life. And I can live a life of gratitude and the grace of God because of that. But what you're seeing in verse 8 is the person who they say they have no sin. And if you say that, you are deceiving yourself because you do and because you are and we all are. If anyone walks around unwilling to confess sin, you have a person who is not an honest person. They're not honest with themselves. And so the counter of that is in verse 9. The person who has done that deep, uncomfortable look uh, work of introspection and looking at their spiritual lives. And this is the person who is willing to acknowledge and confess sin. Uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what God does to the person who's walking in the light? God cleanses that person with the blood of his son. You know what God does to the person who is willing to acknowledge and confess sin? God's faithful and just to forgive that sin. The idea of God being faithful to forgive is perhaps the greatest blessing that there is in this whole wide world. Um, when you think of having a faithful spouse, you don't want a spouse who's faithful 95% of the time. Uh, when you think of having a faithful car, you don't want a car that starts one, you know, nine out of ten times or something like that. You want a car you can always rely upon. You want a spouse you can always rely upon. The existence of this world has told us that sometimes people are shocked when the things that they were thought they could rely upon and trust ended up not to be so faithful after all. The good news of this passage is that when it comes to God and forgiveness, he's always faithful. You can always depend upon him. He not only forgives, he longs to forgive. He wants to forgive. Think about, think about the way, you know, arguments tend to go and, and grudges tend to go. One person maybe does something that's wrong and another person is hurt or offended because of it. Who should make amends? I mean, as Christians, I, I think we know there's, there's a good answer to give to that question. But, but the way people generally look at it, the person who did the wrong thing should be the one to take the step forward and say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. The person who did the wrong thing should try to make things better. They're the one who's in the wrong. What's fascinating about our relationship with God is that we're the ones in the wrong. And yet, who took the step towards whom? It was God who gave us the precious gift of his son, not because we earned it, but because we did the exact opposite. Because we were sinners, he sent Jesus for us. Because he so desperately longs to forgive us, he's the one who took the initiative. And he took the greatest step anyone's ever taken. He made a great, he made a sacrifice to forgive us. If anyone should have been sacrificed to mend the relationship, it should have been us, not God, not his son, not what Jesus does. And so the idea of just the whole Christian story is that God is faithful, he's forgiving, he longs to forgive, he wants reconciliation with you and with his whole world. And he sent Jesus as a means to provide that reconciliation. God wants to forgive and God does forgive. But to the person who walks around thinking, I don't need forgiveness. To the person who walks around saying, I have no sin. To the person who's on then that whole good news doesn't sound like good news, right? Kind of sounds like useless news. To the person, and, and I think that, by the way, I think that's one of the difficulties we're going to have 
uh, in evangelizing a culture that doesn't have a strong view of sin. In fact, a lot of people who aren't Christians think they think of sin merely as like a Christian word about like bad spiritual things. And, and so because of that, they don't tend to think that they have, a lot of people just don't feel guilty. And it's like they haven't really, I think, looked at who they truly are. And they certainly haven't looked at who they truly are with respect to the goodness of God. If, you, if there's a person you run into and they say, I'm a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness, okay, evangelizing that person is going to be easy. But for the most part, a lot of people, they're kind of comfortable with where they are. They're kind of fine with who they are. And, and it's difficult to take a person like that and to say, no, you're actually a sinner. They'll, they're offended at that idea. <laughs> it's like, how dare you say that? Uh, and so all of that is to say, it's hard to forgive a person who doesn't think they need forgiveness. It's hard to get a con confession from someone who doesn't feel as though they have anything to confess. One of the most helpful things we can do for our walk with God is not always to only shine the light on our clean areas, um, but to actually recognize that there are probably ways that I'm imperfect. Uh, there are probably ways that my intentions aren't always even good. There are ways that I'm not just a sinner because I accidentally made a mistake one time, but I'm a sinner because I'm a deeply flawed person. And I only have hope because God loves this deeply flawed person. Thank God. He's faithful and just to forgive that person. You read verse 10, and it says, uh, now this is going back to the other side, the counterpoint. Uh, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us because the reality is God says you did. Uh, and so God's aware of your situation. And so not only are you deceiving yourself, you're lying about God. Uh, and that's, that's never a good thing to do. God's not going to be fooled and be like, oh, I guess, I guess you're not. Uh, God knows that you are. And, uh, and so there's no reason to hide sin from God. There's no reason to try to, uh, try to pretend like we're better than we are when it comes to our walk with God. Being open and honest with who we are, with our own faults and failures, being open and honest with God is about the best thing you can do for your spiritual uh, relationship. You know, there are, I'd be willing to bet, if your entire life was uh, videotaped, there are going to be moments on that film you would not want to be shown up here on a Sunday morning. Uh, I promise you, there are moments in my life I would not want to be shown uh, on film up here. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, to be a smiley, happy person when you're, you know, around Christians and doing something you like and teaching the Word of God and all that stuff, but there are going to be times in my life where I'm not what what I appear to be right now. There are going to be times in my life where I'm grumpy. Uh, there's going to be times in my life where, where there's, there's obvious sin, the obvious failure on my part. And I don't want everyone to see that. Um, but you know what? God sees that. He's very well aware of that. He, there's, like, there's nothing you can hide from God. So to walk around trying to hide it is an act of deception. To walk around trying to hide who I am from the God who created me and knows who I am, it is an act of saying that I'm a liar and he's a liar. So anyway, all of this is something that John is, is trying to get the readers to grapple with within themselves. And it causes us to have some real introspection and to spend some real time thinking about who I actually am. And when you do that, I cannot help but think every person 
should fall before God in his mercy. Um, Thankfully, chapter 2 and verse 1, we have an advocate when we fall before God in his mercy. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That is the goal. That is what you're called. I mean, you should be trying for that. Uh, Don't sin. But there's also the reality that you will sin. And so he goes on to say, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also those for the whole world. So if you, back at the end of verse 7, we find out the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sins. Verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Chapter 2 and verse 2, he, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So because God is faithful and just to forgive, and because Jesus shed his blood, Jesus becomes the means by which, even though we sin and even though we fail at being what God has called us to be, we're not always very good at being Christians, and we're not always very good at being human beings, there is a way for us to be forgiven and to move forward. There's a way for us to have hope. There's a way for us to have joy, and it's the unfathomable riches of the grace of God. That's an important starting point, I think, for understanding the psalm that we're going to be reading. The other passage I want us to read in the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And uh, we'll start reading in verse 4. It's so hard to pick starting points in, in a text because you can always back up one or two verses and get another little nugget that's helpful for understanding. But we're going to start in verse 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit myself so that we don't, we're not here all night. Uh, but in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul writes, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay, that's, a, that's an incredible you know, sentence or, or, or two verses right there that Paul writes. Um, notice what he's advocating. He's not saying, I want you to work and to have faith. He actually pits those two against each other as though they're opposites. He says, to the one who works, then uh, what he does is credited not, not as like, you know, benefit to him, but it's just what is due. You owe God work. Uh, But to the one who does not work, but believes. Is that meaning that Paul does not want us to work? That's what he says, right? He says, to the one who does not work, but believes. It's like, you can't work if you believe. What does he mean by this? And I think this is where it's helpful to kind of get a bigger picture of what Paul's doing in the book of Romans, because yeah, it kind of sounds like that. But if you define works as helping the poor, uh, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, going to church on Sunday, like if you define work in those ways, I don't think you're defining them quite the way that Paul is defining that word. Paul has a word for the things that we're supposed to do as Christians, and he doesn't use the word works for it. He uses the word obedience for it, and he speaks quite well of obedience all throughout Romans. In Romans, he never says, look, obedience isn't that important. He's quite clear. You should be an obedient person. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 and in the very final verses of the book, he talks about what's called the obedience of faith. In Romans chapter 6, he says, uh, though you were sinners, you obeyed from the heart or you became obedient from the heart, from the form of doctrine. And having been set freed from sin, you became servants of righteousness. He he talks about the fact that you have become a slave or a servant of righteousness because you obeyed something. Like, obedience to Paul is really good. Faith to Paul is really good. Works to Paul 
Not so good. Uh, so what's the deal? What is, what is works? And that's, that's something that has led to a lot and a lot of books being written over the years uh, about what exactly Paul means by works. And um, what some people tend to, the, the traditional Protestant answer to that question is something along the lines of works are things you do in order to merit or earn salvation for yourself. So, for example, it might be going to church. If you think, all right, if I go to church this many times, then God owes me salvation, so I'm going to go to church this many times and make sure God gives me salvation. Uh, that's one way of thinking about works, and I think there are some passages that, that would support that way of thinking, uh, that works are things you do to make God owe you salvation. If you think you can earn it through doing enough, there have been some trends in recent years that I think— um, push back on that a little bit, and I think maybe in some helpful ways, um, to kind of look at works. The, by the way, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls helped with this, because there are some documents that we found where Jews talk about works a lot the same way that Paul does. And when they're talking about what works, what they're specifically talking about are certain things that are unique to Jews that set them apart from the rest of the world. There are certain works of righteousness, certain works that they do. It would be the things that most of the arguments in the New Testament are about. Circumcision, uh, Sabbath observance, food laws, things like that, that are unique to Judaism. They're not things like, you know, listening to God or obeying moral instructions or being baptized or something like that. It's more things like, Paul was constantly trying to get Jews and Gentiles to worship together, but why wouldn't they? Well, they wouldn't share the same table, and they, they, because they were, you know, one was circumcised and the other one wasn't, and there were these certain barriers. They were boundary markers, and the reason those boundary markers are important was because Jews didn't really have boundaries anymore. So what I mean is, like, if you're an American, we have, we have a boundary, you know, we have a border, and, uh, and you can look at the border, and you can tell who's on both sides of it, and people like to have borders like that. Well, in Judaism, they had become so dispersed that there weren't a lot of borders, so what made you a true Israelite? It wasn't so much where you lived, it was what you did, and there were certain things in the law of Moses that really set you apart as the people of God, where you looked different than everyone else. And you could show that you're a true covenant Israelite by being circumcised. You could show that by your Sabbath observance, by your diet, by your monotheism, and by certain of these things, which, which were very, very important. In fact, the, in the books of like First and Second Maccabees and in the book of Daniel, you can see that there were Jews who would rather die than eat an unclean food. And then Jesus comes along and declares all foods clean. And there's like, Jesus, you sound more like the Gentile than the faithful Jew who loves our people and our, our covenant heritage. And, and so it was highly controversial. And so Paul spends quite a bit of time actually trying to not completely disregard the Old Testament. Paul uses the Old Testament a lot. But rather what Paul does is he tries to break down certain of those boundary markers that caused uh, distinction and difference between Jew and Gentile, so that Jew and Gentile together, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, are one in Christ Jesus. What makes you part of God's people is not the work that you do or the boundary that you've set up or your circumcision or your food laws or your Sabbath observance. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have that, if you both have your allegiance to Jesus together, it's the faith that saves you. It's the faith that makes you one people. It is not 
the work that actually divides you. So I think if you read Romans through that lens, you begin to realize he actually is spending a lot of time trying to get Jews and Gentiles how to figure out. It doesn't seem so much, in my reading, like he's trying to show a works-based salvation, do this, 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 and this, and this to get to heaven, versus a faith-based salvation, although clearly that's, that's part of it, that, that's there. It seems like he's trying to show there are these things that separate you from these people, and I want you to knock those down. When you get to chapter 14 and 15, it becomes pretty clear. He's talking about these food laws and these different things that have divided these Christians, and he's showing them, do not condemn the person for whom Christ died, or do not destroy the person for whom Christ died for the sake of your food. And he mentions the, the celebration days. He mentions food. He mentions some of these things, these boundary markers. So anyway, all of that is to say, Paul, I don't think, is calling us to not be obedient people. I think what he's calling us to be is to be a united people. Uh, and allegiance to Jesus is what's going to unite you. It's not going to be your works. Your works will give you something to boast of. And that will, again, exclude the people who aren't quite doing those works. So all of this, it, it seems to me, is about figuring out how to unite into one family, Jew and Gentile. That's my brief sketch of Paul's main point in Romans. Uh, but, again, this isn't a study of Romans. Uh, <laughs> Uh, verse 6, though, after having said that, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And so uh, you have some people who God has given this righteousness, and it wasn't because they earned that righteousness through things like circumcision, uh, these works. He's going he's to specifically get into circumcision when he's talking about when he talks about Abraham, because Abraham was credited righteousness before circumcision. So before he did that work. Um, but then he uh, goes on and he quotes scripture in verse 7 and 8. And this is where uh, I really want to camp out for a second. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? That those works that create the boundary, circumcision, that's one of them. He says, no, this blessing isn't just for one or the other, because Abraham received this blessing. Abraham's one of those people, and it was before he was even circumcised. So you want to use Abraham as this prime example. Well, Abraham's actually kind of an example of what I'm talking about. This is what Paul's going to go on to say. But notice there, verses 7 and 8, he's quoting from Psalm 32, right in that passage. And he mentions the blessedness of the person whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. And the third point in verse 8 is the one who the Lord does not take their sin into account. He says that's the blessed person. When we read the passage in 1 John, we realized that God is faithful and just to forgive us. That the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What he's saying is, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, regardless of whether, you know, you've been circumcised or uncircumcised, this is a blessing that God has for you. You could be that blessed man who's been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, and who the Lord doesn't even take your sin into account anymore. That is an incredible idea. The idea that God not only forgives, but there are people who God doesn't hold their sin against them. It's like when you sin, he doesn't put it in your account. God doesn't take it into your account. You are forgiven and cleansed continually 
by the Lord. He says, that's the blessed man. Uh, when, you think of, when you think of who has the good life, the blessed life, Paul is saying, it's that person. And that can be you. And that could be a Jew, and that could be a Gentile. And that, by the way, is what's going to bring you guys together. That's, by the way, what's going to make you one family. That your sins are not being held against you. That you are forgiven. That you are cleansed and perfected by the God who loves you and who created you through your allegiance to Jesus, through your faith in him. And that's what God is calling you to live in. That's who God is calling you to be. And so these passages are connected by this idea that God longs to forgive. He makes forgiveness available and God longs to cleanse us. But one of the things that, uh, that is a part of that is the willingness to recognize our own sinfulness. The willingness to do that deep, uncomfortable work of looking at who I truly am and realizing it's probably not what it should be. So the passage that I want to read, the prayer that I want to read, the psalm that I want to read, comes from Psalm 32. And so let's turn there now with some of these ideas in our minds. Psalm 32. And uh, now that the introduction's over, we'll get to our lesson. (laughs) Psalm 32, uh, verse 1 and 2. It's going to sound really familiar when we read verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in in whose spirit there is no deceit. Um, You remember 1 John, the man who had deceit within himself because he's lying to himself, saying that he he has no sin, right? Well, there's someone who's not lying to themselves. This person is completely honest with who they are and with who God is, and they don't walk around plagued and burdened by guilt and miserable because of that. No, they walk around as the blessed person. Uh, They walk around as the person who has been forgiven and who trusts and has confidence in the forgiveness that God offers. God offers the—there's actually two different kind of pictures of it in verse 1. The first one is transgressions that are forgiven. Um, That's more of like you've wronged somebody, you owe somebody something— and instead of making you pay up, they forgive it. Uh, that, that's kind of that picture of what God has done for us. The other one is their sin is covered. Uh, it's not necessarily, like the idea of covering is not necessarily the same as forgiveness, although they're helpful pictures of what God does for us. One of them is like kind of, uh, there's also an expression that sometimes is used as they're blotted out, you know? Uh, it's like you've made a contract and then you failed to live up to your end of the contract. And so rather than sending you to prison, it just blots out the contract. Uh, rather than holding you accountable, he forgives. Rather than your sin being open and evident and laying there forever, he takes the blanket and he covers over it. He covers over your sins to where it's no longer there being held against you. And that's what God is, has done. And so when the psalmist begins, when David begins, he talks about the person who is blessed because they're in that state. But how did that person get to have that kind of freedom? Well, it came from being open and honest about who they are. This is a psalm that is about confession. This is a psalm that is about 
forgiveness. It's, it's, a, it's a psalm of praise to God, but it's a psalm of praise after a discussion of forgiveness and confession of sin. This is not a psalm where someone is praising God because he's changed my life and that I'm so righteous. It's a psalm of someone who recognizes their sinfulness, yet they are able to have hope and joy and praise and rejoice because of who God is and because of his forgiveness. It's not about how good they are. They recognize throughout the psalm that they're not that good, but they also recognize the unparalleled and unmatched goodness of God, which has been extended towards them. So you read verse 3 and 4. He's going to talk about how hard and how miserable it is to walk around with the burden of trying to lie to yourself about who you truly are, about keeping your sins to yourself. It's a tough thing. Like, it's a burden. I don't like guilt. Um, I don't like, like, if I, I remember as a kid, uh, that horrible, horrible feeling of like, so I, you know, I wasn't always perfect in school and uh, there were, there were times where I, where I, if I'm open and honest about who I truly am, uh, I wasn't the greatest uh, student and there were times I even was a little bit rambunctious in class. So there were times I got in trouble. Some forms of punishment came uh, as a letter sent from a teacher to a parent that I had to get signed by that parent. And you know what the worst feeling in the world is? The day that you get the letter and you have it the rest of the day at school, you have it on the bus ride home, you have it as you're walking up uh, to your house, you have it as you're waiting for your parents to come home, you have it uh, when they get home and you're like, hi, and you're giving them high, pleasant greetings and they don't know anything is about to happen and change in your relationship and, and you sit there and then dinner comes and you're like, really should probably do something with this letter and then uh, dinner's over and and like that horrible burden of I know I know I know things are about to get bad but I don't want to do it but I have to be brave and just do it and and it's like that feeling is to me worse than the feeling of the actual punishment I guess depending on the punishment I don't want to get crazy here punishments can be bad but but that feeling can really just gnaw at you and be miserable it can wear you out it's exhausting if you're keeping something from someone that you love and care about it's exhausting and so you eventually show them the letter you get in trouble but there's a feeling of relief that comes from just getting it over with and being honest instead of carrying it around with you um I think the psalmist is going to describe that burden in these next couple of verses. Verse 3, when I was silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, that's a funny verse, and people have kind of tried to figure out what to do with it, because the first part of it says, I was silent, and the last part of it says, and I was groaning all day long. Um, those aren't exactly the same thing, right? Uh, but it's like, even in my silence, my heart was groaning. Uh, so my translation adds a little expression. When I kept silent, and then it adds about my sin, I was groaning all day long. And maybe, maybe that's the idea of it. But it's, it's, it's almost like he's living with a contradiction within him of, I was silent about my sin, I can't help but like my heart roar about the pain that I'm experiencing right now. Uh, he says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever uh, heat of summer. So I, I remember one time uh, when I was younger, uh, I was still living at my parents' house, 
and it was a Texas summer, and it was over 100 degrees outside, and uh, I thought, you know what? I've been lazy. I need to go out and go for a run, and so I thought, I'm going to get a really good sweat, and I put uh, a sweater on and some sweats on, and there was a five-mile loop around our house, and I'd never run this loop before. I didn't know why this was like, I just, you know, I thought I could do it, and so I started running, and uh, I made it a little ways, and then I realized when I was about halfway there's no good place to turn back and end this thing. I am in the, I'm in the middle of a loop. Uh, and so I eventually stopped running, and I was so thirsty. There were like houses that I could see, and I was thinking, would it be really awkward if I went and asked them for water? Uh, I thought it would be awkward, so I didn't do it. But I was like, I'm going to die on this road if I don't go do this. Uh, I ended up just slowly walking you know, the last two and a half miles or so to get back to the house. I think this was a terrible idea, but that burdened feeling of exhaustion in the summer sun is what he says it was like trying to pretend to be something he's not day after day in the presence of a God who he claims to love. I mean, when you go to church and you worship and you sing these songs and you hear these sermons and you know that you're not actually being the person that you're pretending to be, that can be hard. That can be exhausting. And so he describes life in this way. But then verse five, we have this turning point. Verse 5, he gives kind of a series of things that he did to get out of that terrible disposition in which he felt himself. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice how simple and easy that was. It was like he did a couple of things, and then God did something. He says in verse 5, I acknowledge... No, there's... Notice the way this verse is structured. Uh, there's three different words for sin here. And actually, these three words are pretty much all the three words that are used in the Bible to talk about sins. Uh, the first one in verse 5 is the word sin. And that's a word that kind of has the idea of, of failure, of missing what you're aiming for. You tried to do this. You didn't do that. You, you try, um, there is a passage in the book of Judges, I believe it's chapter 20, talking about the uh, Benjaminites, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, how they had some people who were really good with a slingshot. And uh, it says that they were so good, they could sling that shot and they could hit something a really far distance away and they would not miss. And that word miss, it's the word sin. Uh, so, so sometimes it's used spiritually to talk about spiritually missing, but sometimes it's just the, the word for missing the mark. And that's kind of that word right there. Then you have uh, the word, my iniquity, and that tends to be the idea of wandering away, of, of kind of, I guess, giving up on your goal and wandering away, getting lost. Like if you're, in the, if you're on a trail and you can't find the marker and you're wandering around, you're no longer on the trail, you're lost, you've wandered away from what the goal is. Um, and then he has the idea of his transgressions, and that's more the idea of, of, of a disobedience, of, of a, look, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to do it. I know this is wrong, and I'm doing it. I know that was wrong, and I did it, and I just did the whole thing. You know, sometimes, sometimes with our sin, it's like, it's spur of the moment. You have to make a decision, and you think, I didn't make the right decision. Sometimes we do the thing knowing what we're going to do, and we do it anyway, and we know we shouldn't do it. Um, so there's, there's different aspects to the way you can think about sin, and he kind of covers every one of them right here. He looks at his life, and he sees every way you can sin— that's me. Every way you can miss the mark, every way you can be flat, flagrantly disobedient, any way you can wander away from the goal, I saw that in my life. And so what did I do? Verse 5 says, I acknowledged it, 
Verse 5 then says with the iniquity, uh, my translation says, I did not hide. Some of your translations, I hope, say, I didn't cover it. Maybe the word cover is there. Because that's the exact same word as is used in verse 1, where he says, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And what's fascinating is he's kind of doing a play there where he's saying, I didn't try to cover my sins from God. I, I opened them up. I acknowledged them and confessed them to God. So he covered my sin. Uh, when we try to cover our own sin, it doesn't work out very well. It leads to the burden and the despair that he's been describing. But when we turn them over to God, they'll get covered. He'll cover them for us. God is the one who covers our sins. And so he didn't try to cover it. In fact, he says, I will confess my transgressions. Back to John chapter 1, you have the contrast between the person who says, I have no sin. That's the person in verses 3 and 4 who either, that might be the person in verses 3 and 4. It might be the person who just hasn't looked at their lives very honestly, and they don't feel bad at all about who they are. They just, they, they have a very limited definition of what sin is or of what's wrong, and they just kind of excuse themselves. There are people like that, but there are other people who full well are faced day to day with the reality of their own spiritual weakness or of their own just weakness in general and their own failures. And those are the people who it's a burden when they try to cover that themselves, when they try to hide that themselves. And so verse five, he's not going to hide it anymore. I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. And the verse ends not by saying, and so God told me that if I do X, Y, and Z, then eventually he'll consider forgiving me if I really show that I earned it. It doesn't say, uh, if you feel as bad as you possibly can about it, then I'll forgive you. It doesn't say that if you pray to me ten times. What it says is, and you forgave the guilt of my son. He did it. He just did it. God just forgave because he's faithful and just to forgive. God is a forgiving God. And I think that's really fascinating. Sometimes it's, it's difficult because I don't think the idea here is you sin, you're guilty until God makes you say something. And as soon as you say it, you're forgiven. I think if you go back to verse 2, there's this idea of your sins aren't held against you if you're a person of honesty and confession of sin. It's when you try to hide them that that happens. I don't think it's like a timing thing where, where you're lost until you say the right words, then you're forgiven. Uh, and so that leads people to think, okay, but people, I think, question sometimes their, their confession. Uh, have I confessed every single thing? Have I remembered every single thing that I've done? Uh, you know, people think, have I, have I said every single thing in a prayer? Or have I felt as, like, was I sincere enough? How do you determine sincerity? Did I feel bad enough? Like, you can't always control how bad you feel about something. There might be times where you sin, and, and you know in your head it was not the right thing to do, but in your heart, it's hard to feel like it was the wrong thing to do, and there's a tension there. I don't think this verse is saying God is going to judge based on right, you have to feel X number of bad, 98% bad in order to be forgiven or something like that. Uh, I don't think it is based on that because, again, that puts the ball in, in your court of how good you are at feeling bad. Uh, or it puts the ball in your court as to how good you are at saying things quickly after you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I think it's rather simple. Be a person who confesses sins. Be a person who's open and honest with your failures before God, and God will be a forgiving God. And if you do that, you can be that blessed person who has hope. Therefore, verse 6, 
Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Uh, God will be your God. He will be with you through thick and thin, through flood and through dry, if you are the type of person who lives in this way. Make God your hiding place, verse 7. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That's what God does for you. He surrounds you with the songs of deliverance. He can become. So when you have, you know, one, one of the fears you have as a parent, you want to be strict. You want to be a good disciplinarian. You want your kids to not think that they can do a bunch of bad stuff and there's no problem involved. But there's also the concern that if you're overly strict, your kids don't want to talk to you about their failures anymore. It's like, it's like I don't want my son to be afraid to come to me because he thinks he's going to get a big spanking if he did something wrong at school and he wants to talk to me about it. I don't want my son to, to be in a situation. And so it's like you have to balance openness and love with still being a good disciplinarian and, and being a parent. And it's, sometimes that's a difficult balance to get just right, and I know I'm working on it. Uh, but one of the things that I love about this is sin is the type of thing that like, makes us want to hide from God. And he's saying, don't do that. Make God your fortress. Make God your hiding place. So when you want to hide, hide, like, hide with God, invite God into your hiding place. Make him your hiding place. And that way you'll have the solution to your sin right there with you. Does God get angry over sin? Certainly he does. God doesn't like sin. God punishes sin. But to the person who's honest and confesses his sin, God's the last person you need to fear. Hide with God when your sin becomes unbearable. Grow closer to him and take refuge in him. Verses 8 through 11, we'll finish quickly. He says, I will instruct you and teach you. This is a, kind of a shift in it now, where now it's uh, basically the idea of listen to wisdom when it comes to confession and, and, and sin. Listen to prudence. Uh, let's try to make sure that we're learning as we go through this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and uh, brittle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. I think, uh, basically, just use the illustration he used. Don't be like a stubborn horse or a mule, that the bit is the only way you can get pulled to God. Uh, freely and openly go to God to confess. Listen. He, you know, take the instruction of this psalm so that confession is the first thing you do, is the thing that you want to do, rather than the type of thing that you have to be pulled and, and made uncomfortable to, to kind of forcibly do. Because even if you do that, it's not going to work out very well. That's not what God is calling us to do. And so verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. It takes trust in God to confess him. It takes trust that he's graceful and merciful and forgiving. If you don't confess to God, it might be an indication that you don't trust God to forgive you. So what he's saying is the one who trusts God, his loving kindness, his steadfast love will be what surrounds you and floods you. That's what you can take with you every day. Don't hide from God. Don't run from God. Don't try to, to, to uh, you know... If you ever, um, I don't know if you all do this, sometimes I'll clean out our refrigerator and I'll find some nasty thing that's like in a Tupperware, the back corner that's been there for a long, long time and it was never 
cleaned out. And then you open up, you're like, I don't even want to open this up. I don't even want to clean this Tupperware. This is just going in the trash because this is gross. You know, uh, there, there are the times that, uh, that you find something like that. And sin that's left in the refrigerator of our lives that is unaccounted for, that is unconfessed, that we try to hide back there, it doesn't just harmlessly stay back there. It rots and it ruins and it can destroy everything that's around it. And so what he's saying is clean it out. <laughs> Be open. Be completely forthright. Open up the doors, turn on the light. Let's, let's be completely transparent with our God because he's the one you can trust more than any other. We often don't think of confession as like a happy, good, rejoicing thing. But notice how this psalm ends. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Confessing, confessing sins and confession is something worth rejoicing over. Not because of our goodness, not because of our works, not because of how wonderful we are, but because we have a wonderful God who we can take refuge in. So that to me is a helpful reminder of the type of prayer, the type of, of uh, admonition to be a person who prays and to offer prayers of confession. They're beneficial. God loves you in spite of what you've done. And even if you want to hide it from him, he kind of already knows what you've done. So there's no point. Don't hide from God. Run to God. Take refuge in God and rejoice in the Lord our God. If there's anyone here who maybe you have sin in your life that you would like to confess, we will be forgiving as well. God will forgive you. Your brothers and sisters will wrap their arms around you with love. Don't live with the burden of hiding what you are, what you've done and who you are, but be open about it. And uh, I think that it will be a peace and a healing to you. If you have the need, please come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.